0: This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by False Idols, a high-stakes thriller for fans of White Collar and Homeland. False Idols is a production of Serial Box, which brings you serialized fiction from teams of today's best writers. To get a discount on the first season of any Serial Box series, visit serialbox.com and use the promo code geek18.
1: Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide
0: to the galaxy and here is your host david barr Kurtley. hello and welcome to episode 295 of geek's guide to the galaxy today on the show we'll be discussing the new netflix series altered carbon based on the novel by richard k morgan and this will include spoilers for the first 10 episodes of the show so just be aware of that and i'm joined by three guests so first up we've got daniel h wilson who you may remember from our panel on Blade Runner 2049 back in episode 277, our panel on video games and books and movies back in episode 163, and our panel on robot uprisings back in episode 107. He holds a PhD in robotics from Carnegie Mellon University, and his New York Times bestselling novel Roboapocalypse is currently being adapted for film by Steven Spielberg. His latest novel, The Clockwork Dynasty, is out now. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. The next up, we've got Beth Elderkin, who you may remember from our panel on The Handmaid's Tale back in episode 263. She's a staff writer and video host for io9, and you should all go check out her io9 posts, how Altered Carbon handles its unique whitewashing issue, and Altered Carbon's showrunner on the only book scene she insisted be changed. Along with Abby Kindler, she co-hosts Once Upon a Timing, an episodic podcast about ABC's fairytale drama Once Upon a Time. So, Beth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Anthony Ha, making his sixth appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be back. And today's show is brought to you by False Idols, about an FBI agent who goes deep undercover in Cairo's glittering art world. False Idols is a production of Cereal Box, a new company that brings you serialized fiction from teams of today's best writers. The team behind False Idols includes Patrick Lohir, author of Radiant Night, Diana Wren, author of Tokyo Heist, Lisa Klink, was a writer on Star Trek Voyager, and Robert Whitman, who is the founder of the FBI's art crime division. And here's a description of the book. It says, FBI linguist Layla L. Deeb is deep undercover, posing as an heiress in the Middle East. She must infiltrate the highest echelons of society in order to trace priceless relics from their millionaire owners back to illegal digs and the terrorist groups profiting from their sale. But Layla's troubled past and growing feelings for an art dealer's son begin to complicate her judgment, and when she uncovers a terrorist plot that threatens American and Egyptian lives, she must decide where her loyalties truly lie. Based on true events, False Idols is a tense, sexy international thriller. So if that sounds like your sort of thing, you can join the plot with Cereal Box right now. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listeners can get a discount on the first season of any Serial Box series by going to SerialBox.com and entering the promo code Geek18. So that's S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com, and the code is Geek18. The first episode of False Idols, titled Operation Cairo, is also available as a free ebook over at Amazon.com. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so let's start off with Anthony, who volunteered this week to read Altered Carbon, the book, to be ready for this panel. So, and this book was uh, published, I think, in 2002. So, uh, Anthony, what do you think, kind of going and reading this book? Uh, how does it hold up?
2: Well, uh, I guess the first thing I should say is, you know, I saw the show first and then read the book, which is not, you know, something I would recommend for anyone, especially to do it in such close proximity, because I just kept going back and forth between the two in my head. Um, but overall, I thought I was pretty impressed with it. Um, I mean, it's obviously not a particularly old book, but it is, you know, it's been about 15 years, and... Certain elements, I think, maybe are, are somewhat dated, but overall, I, I think it's, it's a pretty strong book, and I was really glad I got to read it.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, Daniel, you were saying that you read the book when it first came out, right?
1: Yeah, and I, I haven't reread it since then, but I did crack it open into a really cringy sex scene <laughs> um, that uh, that reminds me that you know ninety nine percent of all science fiction authors should remember never to ever 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 in detail right sex scenes it's just <laughs> it can just go so wrong
0: so you just opened the book up and it happened to come to that scene
1: <laughs> yeah i went ortega and uh and and you know she's kind of in love with riker and ortega kind of hooks up with um with the, with the protagonist kovex
0: mm-hmm. okay so so you don't like the the sex scene's not good um but what do you think of the book overall do you i mean you said you liked it i think right
1: yeah no, I loved it at the time when I read it. I mean, it's just such a cool, high concept, right? The idea of taking your your brain out and sticking it into a different body and oddly enough i mean it's it's a high concept that works out really well for film, you know even better I would say than in a book where it's hard to really keep it in your head, you know this notion that weight like This, this old lady is actually in the body of a, of a young, like skinhead looking dude, you know, um, that plays out so well in the, in the film or in the TV show that, uh, I really was pumped about that, but I loved the book whenever I read it. And, uh, and I also liked the the show. Hmm?
0: How about Beth? Do you have any, uh, any thoughts about the book?
3: Yeah, I mean, I kind of I kind of plowed through the book I was on about a, an 8-hour flight and so I was going to go visit the set for the show uh late la- early last year. So I was like, okay, I really want to read the book so I know what the heck is going on and know what questions to ask. And I thought it was fine. I didn't really feel a need to read the other books which I didn't. Uh but when I, you know, I was enjoying it all right. I feel like there are some writing issues in the book that don't really hold up over time uh particularly uh morgan's uh focus on female breasts he writes about those a lot and also you know (laughs) if you'll pardon my language he writes about a lot about erections and stuff you know it's like okay this is about the third or fourth time i have to read about the private activities of this man i'm i'm kind of
1: good now Wait, you're telling me that wasn't random? That I just cracked the book <laughs> and landed
3: no, on like a pretty pre-
0: horrific sex scene. <laughs>
3: it's pretty darn common, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, well that explains that. Well, so tell us about your your set visit. How did that come about?
3: Uh, so yeah, so I went for IO9, and it was. It was actually my first set visit, set visit because I did more traditional media before going to IO9, and it was a very impressive. Like you see, you see the scale on the show, and honestly, it looks even bigger in real life if that actually makes sense. The the street sets, the the uh, the man the Bancroft Mansion, the the meticulousness that went into the design for it is incredible. And the people behind the show cared a lot about what they were making.
0: Yeah. Um, That's cool. So do you have any other, just sort of anything else from the set visit that kind of sticks out in your mind?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the really cool stuff was in the set design. Uh, the the guy who did it has you know, worked on a lot of different projects. He's very well known. And I asked him kind of for some little hints and details uh, that, you know, maybe things that you wouldn't even notice. Uh, like the, the use of books in, in the Bancroft study, for example, is a show of his wealth because print and books are basically obsolete and they're collector's items. And then one little tidbit that... They apparently they actually filmed a scene for this but it didn't make it into the final product uh to show their power much how they use the snake uh you know she the the woman has you know put the mind of someone into a snake the Bancroft's actually put minds of enslaved people into koi fish and they just swim around in their koi pond in this oh study Oh my god <laughs>
0: <That's> <laughs> And very- they're just
3: there all the time. So now you can envision that, just enslave people in the Bancroft mansion all the time.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's cool. pretty cool stuff. And I mean, like, the I agree with you that the, the visuals in this show and the, the sense of a living, breathing world were I thought the strongest part of the show for me. Um, does mm-hmm. everyone else feel that way? Anthony, you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think the visuals, it, it's interesting
2: because, you know, it, it obviously is very strongly influenced. I mean, I think in any sort of, like, kind of noirish mystery science fiction show is going to be influenced by Blade Runner. And that's certainly true here, but it's still like even knowing that influence, I think it looks terrific.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I thought it was beautiful. I, although, yeah, the stuff that takes place in the rainy neon hologram filled streets, uh, you know, that was just a little bit like, okay, we've seen this done before. Um, but I guess it gets them from one place to another. <laughs>
0: Well, so Daniel, so you were saying that the, the concept of this is really strong and works really well on film, and I agree with that as well. Um, so maybe just for listeners, let's let's just say what the show is about. So we're a couple hundred years in the future, and there's this new technology which has been somehow derived from ex- an extinct alien race um, called the cortical stack, where it's this sort of digital device that gets implanted in your spinal column and records all of your your mental state. So that if your body dies, uh, as long as this cortical stack piece of uh, machinery is recovered, they can just uh, stick it into a new body and uh, and upload it. And now you have a new body that you're in. And uh, this, the technology is um, you know common enough that people use it for all sorts of different things. But mostly uh, the wealthy have the most access to it. And so they are basically immortal because they just keep switching into new bodies. And so, as the story opens, there's a okay. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff. Um, but just the uh, (laughs) the bare bare bones of the the setup is that there's a guy who has been um his 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 cortical stack has kind of been in storage. He's been in prison, effectively, for a couple hundred years, and he gets revived and uh, assigned basically to solve a murder case. Uh, of one of these wealthy immortals who has been murdered mysteriously, but he's been brought back because of his uh, cortical stack, um, you know, backup thing. Although this uh, this rich guy, he has a kind of different cortical stack, sort of backup, and I thought this was really, really cool. The whole, I, I, it was worth it watching the whole show just for this because his uh, mental state gets backed up to a military satellite uh, that orbits <laughs> overhead every forty eight hours, and so he's been killed, and so he's gotten his backup, and so he doesn't know how he was murdered because he doesn't have any memories from the last 48 hours, which is when his last backup to the satellite was made. So there's a lot more stuff to the show, but that's (laughs) sort of the basics. Um, Is there anything, anything that sort of sticks out, sticks out to you guys that we should mention just to uh, uh, let listeners know kind of what's going on basically in the show?
1: Well, it bears mentioning that in the distant past, uh, you know, the protagonist was trained as like a military person who wanted to prevent the, Adoption of this technology in the first place, right? Is that what envoys were kind of uh, going for? So he's kind of a super agent, brought out of cold storage to solve a crime. You know, it's like a pretty, um, I don't know, it's a pretty good launch into the world.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think the first episode of this is just the, the setup is really, really strong. It's kind of a classic uh, locked room mystery with this interesting science fiction twist. Um, How about Beth? Are there any other uh, any other sort of story details we should lay out at the beginning here?
3: I mean, the only one that, but it more gets developed as we go on is the background of Takeshi Kovac, and I think it is important to to point out that you know he's he's in a new body that he doesn't recognize. He wasn't brought out of storage voluntarily. He doesn't want to be here, and so a lot of his motivation is. Kind of trying to figure out, you know, do I want to go back in storage, you know, you know, and also having to work with Bancroft, who, you know, exerts a certain control over him right from the get go.
0: Yeah. Uh, Anthony, anything else you want to mention here? Um, no, I think that pretty much,
2: I mean, as you said, there's a lot that we could add, but, um, I guess that'll come up as we're talking about I don't want to like overload this with plot summary right now.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, so I said that the first episode I thought was really good. Do you agree with that? Were you sort of on board, uh, with the first episode?
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think that the, the one is that it's interesting because I think the first, especially like 10, 20 minutes of it, um, are this really amazingly sort of, uh, disorienting, because I hadn't, again, you know, I saw the show first, so I had no idea really what the setup was or what was going on. And it's just this completely, you know, drop you in the middle of the story kind of situation where you're just, like, desperately trying to understand who these characters are, but, like, in, a, in this way that I thought was, like, pretty, like, brave and enjoyable. And so there's the part of the episode which is just, what the hell is going on? Okay, I kind of am starting to get it. And then there's the sort of more classic kind of setup of the locked room mystery, as you put it. And, I mean, I thought both halves were good, but um, and I think that was part of why the episode was, was also particularly enjoyable was because it had, um, you know, both of those elements. Maybe it, it tailed off a little at the end because then there's, it turns into this sort of, thing about whether uh, Takeshi is actually going to take the case but because there's a show you know he's going to take the case <laughs> and so having you know a, a That's what my wife was word. shouting at the TV <laughs>
1: Yeah,
3: He's like no I'm not going to and then the rest of it is just watching this stack as it's just you know sitting in a shelf for nine
2: episodes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. And you're just like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Uh, But they did not go in
0: that direction. (laughs) I mean, so Beth, did you uh, were you sort of on board with this show from in the first couple episodes? Were you enjoying them?
3: Well, as far as the first episode goes, I think there's one thing that really works for it and then one thing that kind of works against it, but in a way where it's easily forgivable. I think it's really amazing that it was Miguel Sapochnik who directed the first episode. He's a really – he's known for Game of Thrones. He's one of their notable directors. He's coming in for season eight. He's done some of the series' best episodes. And I feel visually this one stands out from all the other ones, and you can really see his personal touch. And that's really what I think kind of grips you from the very beginning is how he frames the, you know, how abstract he represents Takeshi coming into the world and grappling with all these memories that are, you know, kind of coming at him from left and right and he doesn't know what to make of it. Uh, the the one thing that was took me a little bit out of it was I feel like Kristen Ortega, Detective Ortega, was given the role of like exposition fairy. Like, every single line she has in the episode, with maybe one or two exceptions, is exposition dump. And, and it's okay because there's a lot of information to get out, you know, a lot of stuff from the book that needs to be explained for the audience. But at the same time, it's like, oh, my God, Kristen, are you just, okay, just like, okay, what more have you got for me? All right, girl, we're going to sit in a car, just tell me everything you know. <laughs> okay, let's do it again.
0: Well, it was interesting because I, I watched all 10 episodes and I just had time to go back and I rewatched just the first episode. And that was something that strikes you watching it for a second time. It's like everything is like, oh, OK, this like everything is being set up, you know, in a way that I yeah. I, I totally didn't appreciate the first time. But we see the, uh, you know, there's the thing about the, the woman, uh, the woman found in the bay who fell into the water. And there's the thing about the floating, um, you know, brothel in the sky. Like I didn't even catch any. I, I sort of, you know. The first time through you don't that does none of that stuff really means anything to you, so it doesn't you know but it's all it's all sort of there, all being set up. Um but but yeah. Um and then another thing in the first episode is that there's this uh AI hotel. Uh it's called the Raven Hotel, and there's this uh AI proprietor who's the sort of uh, doppelganger of Edgar Allan Poe. I thought that was all pretty cool. Um yeah. Daniel, that seems so, like yeah. your sort of thing. Were you were you into that hotel? Dude.
1: I was so into that hotel. <laughs> I was so excited about that scene. This this show does a really good job of paying off like vengeance, right? Because the with with the setup they've got, you can really inflict a lot of organic damage, as they call it. You mm-hmm. know? And the stakes are a little uh they're higher and lower, right? Because you can suffer forever, uh especially if you get your brain trapped in a virtual torture porn. But Like, I really loved it whenever he teamed up with that AI and, and maybe my, one of my favorite moments of the whole, of the whole series was when that AI goes and talks, I can't remember if it's the first episode, he goes, Poe goes and talks to other AIs and one of them says to him, what do you care about humans? You know, (laughs) who cares about human beings? We're, we're AIs. We've got all this amazing stuff we can explore. And the fact that he's obsessed with, with humanity, I love that. I just love that dynamic from an AI uh, character. And I thought he was really super well done um, as a character in the whole series. And I was really bummed about, you know, how that storyline ended.
0: Yeah, I guess we should explain. So so the one of the implications of these cortical stack things is that if you shoot someone, you know, in the chest or something and kill them, they're still fine. But you can always, you know, you have the option of just going up and sticking your gun on their neck and blowing it away, which is going to kill them permanently. Um, and so, um, there's still tension because you could always still just get a random shot through your cortical stack, killing you permanently. Or if you're disabled, someone can always just come up and stick a gun to your neck and blow you away. So it's not just like you're immortal, no matter what happens to you, you're going to be fine.
3: So I, well, I, it seems like there's I always also have a quandary. like a legal, oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. I was going to say I always had a quandary about that because you never see anyone with like neck protectors neck yeah, yeah. <laughs> it why is it neck armor like the biggest thing especially if it's
1: you... like Highlander <laughs> exactly
3: you know? you know like or in futurama where they wear you know the things on the back of their heads so anyway but yeah that seems like something that should have been at least mentioned
2: yeah yeah well i was going to say also the other thing maybe worth mentioning is just that there seems to be a legal framework around that where um if you you know, if you if you if you kill someone's you know physical body, their sleeve, that seems like that probably is a crime. But like the much more serious crime is if you destroy their their stack, which is like I guess called real death. And and so like there's the like, I guess a really important distinction um, in terms of like whether or not someone's guilty of you know just killing a, a physical body or or real murder.
0: Yeah.
1: One thing I was curious about was where did all these sleeves come from? And if they're all clones, why weren't there more identical sleeves? Because you never see the same person twice except for with the the Methuselahs, the really rich people who make their own bodies, clone their own bodies. Where do you think all the sleeves are coming from?
0: Well, a lot
3: of them are prisoners. People, (laughs) prisoners, rejected bodies. I think... I think what is also implied is that you can like loan out your body if you're in debt or something. You know, you, like you put yourself on ice and then your body gets used up by other people in the hopes that you'll get a new body one day. They don't, that's something that actually isn't very well explained, at least not in the show.
0: Mm-hmm. But there is this great sequence where um, they want, uh, uh, Chris, uh, Kristen Ortega wants her grandmother to come spend <laughs> uh, the day of the dead with them. And so, um, she's sort of brought her, uh, personalities brought out of storage and put into the body of some like biker guy. Um, I thought that whole thing was just, was just fantastic. How
1: about that acting, right? Like, <laughs> have you guys ever seen that? I mean, have you ever seen an actor. I mean, what kind of job is that to take? This guy's like a six foot four. Uh, he looks like a, like a biker, right? Like he's got tattoos all over his shaved head, this big crazy beard. And it's like some some casting director was like, okay, so you need to be, in this role, you will be abuelita. You will be a little tiny, like, <laughs> um, <laughs> grandma who's, like, in love with her family and so gentle and happy. <laughs> and he just shows up and he just totally killed that role. Hmm. And, I mean, I loved it. That's it's one of the things I love most about the series. And episode eight is when they nailed this, uh, when, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but but anyway, someone's wife comes back, you know, and she gets cross-sleeved, which is whenever you are in a different gender. Oh, man, that was good stuff.
3: So I will, um, like, the, the the biker guy who played the abuelita, uh, he was one of my favorite parts of the show, along with the one you're talking about, Ava, who is uh, uh, Ava Elliott. Uh, and I actually, I couldn't find the actor's name, but I wanted to, like, give him a shout-out in my review. <laughs> his wife actually contacted me. You can't really find his credit, uh, but his name is Matt B. Dell. I'm probably saying his last name wrong, but I want to give him a shout out because I thought he was one of the best performances of the whole season.
1: It's incredible, wasn't it? Yeah,
3: yeah he was amazing.
0: Um, and then I think we should also mention, so there's also this uh, religion in this world called Neo-Catholicism, and the Archdiocese we're told is um has the view that if you um you know if you use this technology to, to spin up again, to, to resleeve yourself in a new body that you go to hell. Um, so people who are adherents of this religion sort of have themselves marked as like DNR, basically. Um, and, and so so they don't get spun up again if they die, and that becomes important to the plot. Um,
1: that felt like one of the weaker elements of the series, don't you think? Like, all those people like, protesting or whatever, that just felt kind of, like, phoned in. Like, who are they? Where are they? Why are they protesting in the streets? Like, what's their point? Like
0: Well, no, but... <laughs> They were protesting outside the prison, right, because the prisoners are getting resleeved. Right. I mean, I agree with you. It felt sort of – it didn't have as much of a sense of reality as some of the other things in the show.
3: Yeah, I did like how they had Ortega's family kind of represent the mentality behind that because in the book, it's not really well explored and, and Takeshi doesn't really care. However, I, you guys are right. I think that there could have been more exploration as to why like we. It, it's kind of one of the things like, oh, it's just the way it is. Well, why don't you want to resleep? It's just, it's just the way it is. It's just we do it, and yeah. that's it, and we're good. I'm like, good. You guys can live forever. You got to have a better explanation than that.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I guess like I believed that like that you could just sort of accept it, but also yeah, the way that people, I, no one. See there never seem I guess maybe except for Kristen herself who I guess is is no longer really sort of in the religion but but it, it, I guess like I, I imagine that, that I think a lot of ways like religion works right is is there's also this sort of gray area where people kind of believe they kind of don't and and so it, the way it also did, like divided everyone up very neatly into like yes or no I thought felt like it was a little bit schematic as well
1: Also uh, why wouldn't they not have the cortical stack ever installed I mean what religious person is going to let their infant baby or their one-year-old get this thing put in their neck if they think it's going to doom them to an eternity in hell. Like, it feels like there'd be people
2: without stacks.
1: And and they all had stacks, right? Even though they were religious.
2: I right. Thought the... And that's why they were able to, I mean, then, yeah, the,
0: the, I mean, that becomes important later on. So it did, seems like everyone has a stack. Did Kristen's yeah. mother have a stack? Because she was I think op- so. opposed yeah. to it. The...
3: I think everyone has them. They say that they give it to you when you're a baby.
0: Yeah. And they,
3: that's why, because they want to, you know, that's one of the big, you know, mysteries of the show or is this legal case where they want to revive dead people who were who were registered as neo-Catholics to testify in court cases. Now, if they were if neo-Catholics didn't have the stack, then this wouldn't be an issue. So I think that it's a I think it's an assumption that all of them have stacks, even if they don't plan on using them.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's just another world building detail is that there's been this recent law called uh, Rule 653 or something, which was going to make an exception where people could be brought back, even if they were neo-Catholics, in order to testify about who murdered them. And this law was recently defeated. Um. Which also plays like, like everything sort of plays into a, a conspiracy as the show goes on. But I mean, I feel like a lot of people would not be cool with this te- and just in the real world. I mean, just, just in the last uh, episode or two, I interviewed Bill McKibben, the environmental activist, and he had a book enough that we talked about. And I feel like he would mm-hmm. not be into this at all. Um, <laughs> so I mean, I yeah. feel like there are a lot of people who would, uh, not, you know, who if if told that there's this technology that'll restore your consciousness into a clone body or whatever uh there would be a lot of opposition to that i feel like i mean that's not implausible yeah
1: hey before before we move on i wanted to speak to my feeling about the first episode which is i had a bit of a different experience than everybody else in that i really felt like every new episode got better and i Mm -hmm. the first episode the first episode, honestly, the, the protagonist, he looks a little bit like the guy from The Expanse. And when I started realizing <laughs> that it was like, oh, it's a bunch of weirdos in the future. And there's been a murder. And then there's like a detective guy. And I was just like had this sinking feeling because I was like, why does it always have to be a detective story? Like in the future, can't they do any other type of story? Like uh, and then he's walking around in the rain. And then there's that moment when he goes into the to the hotel and the guy has an old hat, you know, like, because the hat, the fedora thing is such a big deal in the expanse. And anyway, I was just like, oh, man, this is this is going to be rough. And then it got better, you know, but I was scared at the beginning <laughs> that it was going to be rehash of something I'd seen already.
0: Well, I agree with you that the adherence of this show to film noir conventions was among my least favorite aspects of the show. I mean, one thing I really don't like particularly about the fil- the whole film noir, uh, thing is just how the, uh, the detective will just go around being a total jerk to everyone he meets yeah. and pointlessly antagonize everyone and just get himself, uh, you know, assaulted or kidnapped repeatedly when he could have avoided this just by being, you know, more savvy or polite, um, in the, in how he was pursuing the case. And, and yeah, so, I, I mean, I really love this show. I, there's a lot of things I really like about it, particularly the world building and so on. As I was saying, but yeah, one of my big gripes is that I feel like, uh, like, and I know this isn't true, but it feels to me like it was written by and for teenage boys. And <laughs> so, David,
1: you're David. You're more of a Matlock fan than like a Mar- Philip Marlowe fan. <laughs> <laughs> like you want a, a genteel detective
0: who will yeah, a well, because you who will go around and yeah, well, I like watching. I I like watching smart characters do smart things. And so I would rather watch a smart detective be savvy and manipulative or charming or whatever than just, yeah. you know, being a kind of like... And, and, and just, sorry, let me f- finishing my teenage boy kind of thing. It's just like, it just feels, a lot of this just feels to me like a teenage boy fantasy. It's like, oh, I'm just this badass guy. And I just go around and I'm just like sulky and, uh, you know, I just tell people what's what. And then I kick their ass. And then there's like all these beautiful women and they're all in one way or another, okay. in love with me or obsessed with me. And, uh, and that was, yeah, I could have, I, I, that was sort of one of my this aspects of the show that was my least favorite aspects of the show. I
2: would also say that the show sort of, in terms of that sort of like not, not, at least not in the, in the initial episodes, a not particularly bright seeming, you know, very sort of like, uh, you know, quote unquote, unlikable detective. It sort of doubled down on that because, Takeshi is that way, and then Kristen is also kind of that way. There's a lot of, like, scenes of, you know, them, like, butting heads with superiors and butting heads with the authorities. And and, and sort of having your two leads be like that can get pretty grating, I thought, as well. And as much
3: time as we spend on this investigation, it really doesn't go anywhere until the giant villain exposition that lasts for about (laughs) two episodes straight. Like... I mean, I read the book, so I knew where the investigation was going and where it was going to end. And even I was really confused. And I didn't feel like they were actually getting any damn work done. And then all of a sudden, you know, the big bad villain, who I will not spoil yet, uh just kind of comes in and goes, okay, here's everything that you need to know. I'm going to just fill in all the blanks because there's like 45 of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. Because, well, because in the first episode – um, Takeshi gets uh, sort of jumped by this squad of goons. Uh, And then a lot of the next couple episodes have to do with the fallout from that, which turns out to be kind of uh, pointless um, as -hmm. it develops. Um, Yeah, I don't know how spoilish we want to get this early, but um, I I agree that, yeah, that that there isn't a a really good sense of him solving the crime, um, you know, episode to episode. And, oh, this clue... You know, I feel like a lot of the the first five episodes or so are all red herrings, um, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I agree with that. Which I, I suspect is part of what maybe is where
2: I'm on board with what Daniel was saying about the episodes getting better is that, like, the plot just definitely kicks in much more strongly in the second half. And at that point, it be, it, you know, the show really got its hooks on uh, into me, whereas the first few episodes was like, oh, this is interesting. This looks good. I'm kind of curious where this is going, as opposed to really kind of feeling hooked.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of naked people and a lot of fighting and, <laughs> and a lot of cool outfits and costumes and everything. And that's great, but that can only take you so far. Um, and then you, you know, you start to finally care about the group of people that he's collected around himself. And, you know, that's just saying that we've got these two protagonists who are really jerks. And that's true. And, and what happens though is they collect a group of people who are less jerky around them. And by the time we get to episode five or six, we've got kind of a, a crew and, and a little bit of uh, relief from just the onslaught of people being dicks to each other you know, <laughs> and, and cutting each other up and, yeah, punching each other in the face.
0: Well, right. So, so one of the early, I think it's episode four or so, um, Takeshi gets tortured in this virtual reality dungeon kind of thing. Oof. Uh, sounds like Beth has opinions about that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, this was one of the things I really didn't like about the book was the whole torture scene. Uh, because I don't know if, if there's those who don't know, but it's all virtual, it's all digital, it's all in his mind. And in the in mind, the torture puts him in the body of a woman who's connected to his past, something troubled from his past. And he's tortured as a woman and includes, it's very horrific, includes genital mutilation. It's very bad. And, you know, the showrunner rightfully changed it to have it be, you know, Joel Kinnaman himself during the torture, which made a lot of sense. However, upon watching it, one, I couldn't watch a lot of it because it was very graphic and unsettling. And two, I, I don't feel like we got anything out of it. It seemed to only be included because it was in the book and it didn't teach me anything about the character that I didn't already know. Oh, he's brash and he'll kill people when he's mad. We've seen him do that like three times already. I
1: think they tried to use it as a way because he kept flipping back in his mind to lessons from um, – what's the lady that he was in love with? Kel. Kel, yeah. and And I think that they tried to use it to demonstrate his training as an envoy. But you're right, it was a continuous kind of connection there. It's like, yeah, look is he a, is he going to be able to withstand the the stuff or not? Like they just kept cutting to him being tortured and then cutting back it's like just show me the, everything that happened in the past so that I can determine whether he's going to be able to deal with the torture like there's pointless to jump back and forth um, because the torture part isn't conveying any information
0: well, and i I, I mean I don't necessarily have a problem with the torture set up per se, but just from a, a, a technical this is kind of maybe stupid, but just from a technical standpoint, I don't like the trope that you can defeat VR by just through sheer force of will, um, the sort of yeah. matrix kind of thing. <laughs> if you uh, believe
3: yeah. it you can achieve anything!
0: Yeah, That that just <laughs> mm-hmm. seems stupid to me and uh, um, and so yeah, uh, well, so, so that's why it I didn't really of
1: a, It was a deus ex at the end, he just closed his eyes and was like boop, okay, I'm out of here and it's like, couldn't you have just done that? Like it saved me 25 minutes of my life, <laughs> like, you know?
0: Well, well and then once like, he gets out, he's he sort of like um, convinces them that he's a CTAC agent and they've really screwed up. And that was good. I mean, I thought that he should have, you know, we we could have seen that his training has enabled him to endure torture much longer than an ordinary person would be able to. But there should be something clever about the way he gets out of this, not just like magical, you know. If you believe in it you can anything is possible kind of stuff
3: yeah maybe he convinces them that he's SeaTac inside the VR and they wake him up it's the exact same thing and doesn't have this magic magical realism element
1: did you guys notice that the next episode starts with him torturing somebody (laughs) like it was really it was it felt like a very clear message like he has learned nothing like (laughs) torturing people (laughs) is like part of his it's just like on the menu for him, right? Like, He's like, just
3: because it's not effective on me doesn't mean it's not effective <laughs> <Yeah>. on
1: him. <laughs> yeah, totally. <It's laughs> I thought that was pretty funny.
0: Well, uh, I, I think this, this raises, it raises the issue, though, right, of is this show just too violent overall? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people are going to think it is. I mean, there were even there was like one part in particular, I don't even remember exactly when it was, but somebody gets shot in the throat and their blood splatters all over somebody's face or something, and it actually made me laugh. It was so over-the-top. Um, but I don't know what you guys, uh, Anthony. What do you think of it? Was this show too violent? Do you think? I didn't have. I'm trying to. Th- I mean, I, I guess like when we talk about violence, there's a couple of different things. Well,
2: like one is like I think there are a couple moments where there's sort of like gore effects and blood, and and I don't know that it always worked, But I, I guess it it wasn't so over the top that it that it, it was something that bothered me a lot about the show. Um, I think you know the maybe tying it, tying it back to what we were talking about earlier. It bothered me just in the sense that it just felt like. A lot of situations boiled down to somebody being tortured or somebody having to, like, fight their way out of some situation in a way that felt a little bit repetitive and, again, didn't necessarily make me think that our, like, lead detectives were actually that great at detecting. (laughs) Um, So in that sense, it was sort of formulaic, but it didn't bother me. I guess, like, the violence... I mean the torture. I mean the torture got monotonous, um, and I, I guess it also it felt like they 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 fell back on that trope of just like, all right, now I'm gonna like beat the shit out of somebody to like get this information that I need a little bit too often. Um, but it didn't strike me as a particularly violent show, I guess, in the way that you're talking about, where it's just like blood everywhere and everyone's just getting shot to bits. Although there are a few scenes like that.
0: Well, it's funny because the um, interview I saw with the showrunner, she said that this was originally in development. As a feature film rated PG thirteen, oh, uh, God, which is very diff- and Like, and they were, and she, I think she said, like, they, rather than the, um, the the sex workers at the end being quote unquote snuff whores, they wanted to make them lap dancers, and just like all sorts of stuff where it just it like, makes no sense at all. So I mean, I, I'm glad that they they did this as a hard R kind of you know gritty science fiction TV show. I I just thought were, it was a little a little little <laughs> it <laughs> suffers the from. Sometimes. It
1: suffers from the Game of Thrones effect. Like, Game of Thrones spent has spent years dialing up the level of violence and sexual violence and depravity depravity that they that they can expose us to in order to like, you know, continue to get through to audiences that are like increasingly numb to that kind of stuff. And then they had to basically go farther than Game of Thrones, and they had to do it in their first season. So like by the end of this, whenever they're trying to make it very clear that the big bad person who comes back, who I guess I won't spoil yet either, that uh, this person is a bad person. Yeah, it involves like child rape and child killing children and like every damn terrible thing you can think of. The people aren't just naked. There's like vaginas and penises hanging around like crazy all over throughout this series. Like they have to, I feel like, go farther. And, and, you know, with the sex and the violence, than then uh, Game of Thrones has gone, and it's kind of jarring to me. I felt like this was a very violent uh, show. Um, I kind of I liked it, <laughs> but, you know, and it kind of fits with the theme. These bodies are disposable. You know, when bodies are disposable, whether they're naked or not doesn't matter. Like, whether they get shot up it doesn't matter as much. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of at least it fit the theme and didn't feel forced.
3: This seems like a, this seems like a show where it's really going to be on a case by case basis. Like I, like I actually had to close my eyes a lot because I will pass out if I see too much blood <laughs> or gore, like physically will drop and faint. So I didn't see too much of it because I had my hand over my eyes. But what I saw as far as nudity, sexual content, violence, it, it didn't bother me because uh, as he was saying, it works in the context of the show and the message. But I do believe there are going to be people out there who will not be comfortable with the subject material. And so I think as long as people go in with the knowledge, with knowing what to expect and how far it's going to go, then I, I think it's going to be fine because this is not for everybody.
2: Well, I think it also runs into the same problem that I think, as you mentioned, Game of Thrones and also Westworld, which are these shows that are you know very in in somewhat different ways, but have like these sort of cynical view of human nature, and are trying to sort of make these sort of bleaker points. And so, in some ways, they're justified in showing a lot of this violence and sexuality. But sometimes it feels like even in that context, this is, we uh, you can you, you, as a viewer you start to say, "Yeah, we get it. Everything's shitty. This is all bad." But like, we don't need like the fifth scene of this.
3: At least they didn't include the bestiality. <laughs> That's
2: true. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Or incest, you know the, I thought they were going to go that way. Uh, it was heavily
3: implied,
1: <laughs> yes, it was, but uh we we dodged that bullet didn't we yep
0: uh, well so so Daniel, you were talking about how there's this um sort of flat there 's a sequence of flashbacks where we get takeshi's backstory. Uh, I feel like it comes in around episode seven or something where like the whole episode is is basically flashbacks, so let's talk about what his backstory actually is, so it it turns out that he. Uh, had a sister as a kid and they had an abusive father i think who was uh um you know um abusing their mother and Takeshi, i think shot him and then um rather than go to prison he kind of gets the gets catches the attention of the sea which is like the space marines basically and gets recruited into them um with the agreement that they're going to f- place his sister with a good foster family. Um, and then – well, I don't know. Do you want to – Daniel, why don't you pick up But what happens after that? Remind me what happens sure. in this uh, – So flashback. so what
1: happens is he gets recruited by uh, by SeaTac, which is really the airport in Seattle. But anyway, so <laughs> – and a particular individual too, actually. I thought it was interesting because it's the one thing that – maybe I missed it, but I don't feel like they paid it off. There's this one guy who recruits this kid, who's obviously a really tough kid and been through a lot. They train him up as a soldier. He wears the really cool headgear. He runs around, I guess, flying around off-world, completing missions. He's just a bad dude. And then um, you know, what happens? He he runs into these uh he runs into his sister, right? And he's killing the Yakuza, and she's with the Yakuza, killing CTAC agents. Then they go back to back and they start blasting everybody they just kill everybody (laughs) and he finds out that c uh betrayed him they didn't try to do anything with his sister they lied about what they were going to do for her and then they go on the run together hunted by everybody and then they kind of randomly fall in with this group called the envoy who are uh like freedom fighters who are i guess battling against the idea of these stats uh and then they get trained up by those people. His sister does sees them just as a means to an end. He falls in love. Uh and then, you know, and then his sister ultimately kind of betrays him and yeah. kills the woman that he's in love with. Uh and that's that, right?
0: Yeah, so I mean and I I, I liked the the envoy sequence in that it, it got away from the film noir stuff and it gets more into sort of like a space opera kind of vibe and it's on an alien planet and Uh, it brought a little variety of the show to me, uh, to, it brought a little variety to the show for me, but I, I, I had a lot of issues with this whole sequence. Um, maybe I can get into them, but I'll give, uh, how about I'll give other people a chance to go first. So how about, um, Beth, how did you feel about these, uh, this flashback sequences?
3: Well, I actually liked it better than his backstory in the book because they change the envoys significantly. The envoys are the fight, you know, the fighters who will just sleeve from body to body. Basically, they morph that into CTEC. And and instead, they make envoys something he's fighting for. And his sister is an addition, someone to kind of play off of this. She ends up merging with, you know, the villain character. So I actually really liked it. I felt it gave Takeshi motivation. I felt it gave him personality. And I felt it gave him an extra layer of understanding when he's put into this new body. Because he spent good portion of his life fighting against this very thing that's been done to him. So no wonder he would be really mad about it. And he would resent Bancroft for putting him through this. Whereas opposed suppose in the book, he's just... Just kind of grumpy, like all the time. He's very, <laughs> at least in the first book, he's very grumpy. I don't know what he's like in the second and third book. I haven't read it, you guys. So I liked it better, and I felt that um, the actor Will, who played original body uh, Tokeshi, was the best version. We can get into this later. Joe Kinneman <laughs> was my least favorite part of the show. Hmm.
0: All right, yeah. So let's let's come back to that. But so, Anthony, what did you think of the flashbacks?
2: Well, so I agree with Beth that I think that that change from the books of, of making um, his sister the, the enemy, um, was just like, to me, like, yeah, it was like, just made the show like significantly better. And conversely, when I was reading the book and I realized that wasn't going to be the case, it really took the air out of it for me. And I was kind of like really trying to understand why he was so motivated to go after this person It just felt like it really lacked some of the, the drama um, and the stakes that, that the show did. Um... I would say the episode, and I liked the idea of this flashback episode. I really liked the actor playing Takeshi. um, And, but I I do think there are a couple of key moments where it kind of fell down for me. I just thought like the whole conception of the envoy felt kind of thin in this, where it was like, like, especially this moment where she, like, Kel gives a speech where she says, like, I've been lying to you about what we're fighting for. Guess what? We're fighting to preserve death. Let's go on a suicide mission to preserve death. And everyone's like, I mean, and there is a moment of hesitation. But even so, that still felt very thin and rushed in the same way that I think Takeshi's conversion to from going like, hey, these are good people to stop with to I believe in this cause felt a little bit um, murky to me. Uh, it, it just felt like some of the key moments were a little thin.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that completely. Is that because what did they think they were fighting for prior to that? It, it just felt really weird to me. And then just the whole character of Kelchrist um, you know, she's like the best fighter ever. She's like the best at defeating virtual reality ever. She invented the stacks. She's beautiful. She's in love with Takeshi. Just just the whole just the whole character. The character just felt like sort of like too much of a fantasy, like male fantasy. I forgot kind of about thing.
1: the fact that she invented the stacks. That. That's that's laying kind of, it on. So it's just thick. thrown
3: out there as this side. Oh yeah, I, I I invented that shit, and now I want to destroy it.
1: <laughs> yeah, if I mean, wouldn't she be really rich? I mean, when, I don't know. <laughs> well,
0: and just how did she get to be so much better at everything than everyone else in this universe? It just, I mean, like there could be some explanation for that, but there just wasn't that I saw um and it just yeah the whole it just felt had this weird sort of dreamy quality to it where as i think somebody was just saying it just didn't feel as as sort of world building strong as as some of the rest of the stuff
2: wait so i have a question in the show are the stacks human invented or are they invented by aliens and then adapted by human by cal in some way
1: yeah i don't remember the
2: alien stuff from the show i think the alien stuff might just be in the books no no the alien stuff's in the show
3: well, okay. it wasn't it just a tree from another planet and it had this weird property that they adapted oh, for the technology?
1: That's what the tree is about.
3: That's what it <laughs> seemed like to me. But then I might have tuned out while they were talking about that for a
0: second. <laughs> you might have had your eyes covered during that part.
3: Yeah, the tree was glowing and then they all had magic stacks. I, no, you
0: know. I mean, I, I haven't read the book and I, I knew that the stacks were alien technology. So that must be in the show somewhere. But then there is also the thing about Kel inventing it. So I don't know. That is a little, I don't know, maybe she adapted it or something, but yeah. She's an
3: alien. <laughs>
0: <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Um. But, but yeah. And so, so I had all sorts of problems with that. And then just the idea that again, again with like, just how, how does this technology work? Just the idea that like everybody on multiple planets has their minds um, recorded and you can take the whole thing down by attacking one, like, by one attack on one facility. I just don't believe that the technology would work that way. Um, and, and that's one of my sort of pet peeves in, in a lot of fantasy and science fiction kind of stuff where you can take down the whole robot network or whatever it is by just blowing up one building, you know, cause that's just not how technology works.
2: Right. It's not like she's, let's launch a campaign against this technology. It's like, let's now go on the one mission that will end all of this, which, again, yeah, doesn't feel very believable.
3: Yeah, there's a similar situation in the first episode of season two of Humans, where uh, this this android has this technology that can awaken all the robots. And she's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to awaken all the robots. And she presses it, and nothing happens. And it's just like random ones end up waking up around the world. It's like four or five of them. And she's like, well... That was a bust. Hmm. It's kind of a nice little subversion of, <laughs> of that trope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and then just the fact that they made Kel, like, be in love with him, I, I think could have I, – I think you could have had a t- – you, you could have had all the emotional impact and not had a – Mentor uh,
1: relationship. Explicit yeah.
0: romance. And it, it just would have, like, again, not seemed so much just like a weird fantasy that somebody made up for themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it feels like this, also this Hollywood thing where they, it's hard for them to believe that, like, somebody could, like, would make, like, convert in that way just for political or, like, moral reasons. There always has to be sort of this personal overlay to it. And so, it, it, yeah, it just felt like they were just like, well, now that explains why he's so into this. And, and it felt very perfunctory. And, and it also took time away from the relationship between Takeshi and his sister. And so that, that really felt not quite there by the end of the episode
1: so who was the lady who gets killed in the opening scene that he's with was she just
2: some lady I mean, she's yeah, just some lady i think
3: yeah it's 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 just a passing moment from the from the opening of the book it's that killed
1: me cuz you know. i spent i spent the whole series being like who's that lady that he was in love with that he was living with or or whatever right like cuz you just as an uh, audience member you just sort of make assumptions that the first two people you see are Important, and then you know she gets killed, and then he charges the guy, screaming, and he gets shot. And what I was going to say earlier is, the guy, the SeaTech guy, the one who recruits him as a boy, betrays him, and then ultimately kills him. They never deal with that guy. I was like, how's he going to get revenge on that guy? You know, because <laughs> there's a lot of great revenge that happens in this series that's very satisfying. And did I just miss it? But that guy just—he uh he just lived a long, happy life. Uh, in the past, and, or perhaps he's still around, um, but just never got dealt with.
0: Yeah, yeah he's the cool. guy. His name is Jaeger. <laughs> he's the German guy. Um, I don't know. Yeah, he may be around in season two. I mean, if if he's... Yeah. Uh, if the military gives you cortical stack transfers long enough to last 250 years, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him again. Um, but yeah, I agree. The, the woman in the first scene, I think, is just like the the girlfriends who just will never measure up to Kel Christ. Um You know? Uh, yeah. I, I don't mm-hmm. think there was much more to I was, her.
1: I was wondering about that the whole time.
0: Um, but yeah, so let's see. Okay. So let's talk about the sister, right? So getting back to the flashback. So in the flashback, Takeshi is totally under the spell of Kel, who's going to, bring down the cortical stack network and bring death back into the world for everybody um, because the upper classes now they're immortal and it's just not good for society because it's so unfair and unbalanced and everything. And, uh, and so as I think Anthony was saying, it turns out that the sister Ray betrays them because she feels that Takeshi is being led and taken on the suicide mission and she doesn't want to see him killed for, this cause that she doesn't particularly believe in. And I thought that was all actually worked pretty well. And I was totally, I could totally see the sister's point of view because I don't want the cortical snack stack network taken down and <laughs> doesn't seem worth dying for, for me. So, I mean, I thought that her betrayal of them should have been a lot more like toned down. Um, but the, that the basic dynamics of that I thought was really good. And I was actually kind of on her side when it comes to that.
3: Yeah, she makes a good point. <laughs> and then she has snakes. Things <laughs> changed.
2: <laughs> right, they sort of put their hand on the scale by showing, like, everyone, like, clawing their eyes out and stuff and, and you know, obviously that it ended. But if she'd just been like, you know what? No thanks. Goodbye. Like, you, you'd you be like, yeah, absolutely. I get it.
1: Or at least give him a chance to be. She should be like, you know, I'm out. Are you coming with me? And Or are you going to stay here? Like... It felt like she should have at least been able to say that. Did she? I mean, was there a part where he said, see ya?
3: Well, she didn't want to leave her brother. And I think she was, like, she was setting it up so that Takeshi would be on the plane with them. But he got held up. So that's why she and Kyle just went together. But her whole plan was to save her and her brother and kill everybody else. Because that is all she cared about. She had been through hell and high water to save her brother. Yeah. So if she had simply left, he wasn't going to leave. So that's not an option yeah. for her. Other option?
1: And yeah. murder everyone. I felt like there was <laughs> – she had a lot of anger too, which, which I found interesting and complex because she felt like he abandoned her. You know, even though he says they said that they were going to take care of you, he didn't stick around to really find out and he never found out what happened to her. And so it felt like she had some anger and she wasn't really acknowledging it. She was just, uh, you know, lashing out at him, convincing herself that she's trying to help him, but really just getting revenge for being abandoned.
3: I think it can be both. I mean, she may not even know she has those anger issues even after hundreds of years, but it's definitely underneath yeah. the surface.
1: Yeah, and I think she carried that with her all the way into the present story, where she's had herself convinced of this thing. This is all for your own good. Um, I think she made a pretty complex villain, you know, Uh, in in the grand scheme of things. I
0: I thought she should have been a complex villain, and the seeds for that were there. But I felt like she just became a total cartoon villain, um, particularly in the last episode. I mean, Daniel, you were saying all the episodes got better. I thought the last episode was... Terrible. I mean, um, it was funny because I was watching this and my my girlfriend was just kind of like sitting nearby working on her laptop. So she wasn't even watching it. She was just kind of listening, half listening. And at one point during the 10th episode, during the climax, uh, she kind of looked up and said, it just got really bad, didn't it? And And I said, yeah, I mean, it's it's like on the on the floor of the sky, (laughs) uh, the floating (laughs) um, brothel in Mm -hmm. the sky. I just thought it just got uh, am I am I? I just feel like it's so obvious that even my girlfriend, who wasn't even really pre- paying attention, it was pretty clear to her. But am I? Are we? Uh, are we alone in that? Do you guys not agree that the tenth episode was really underwhelming?
1: I'll be honest. I was pretty drunk for the tenth episode, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was watching with a friend who's who's staying over, and I tried to catch him up on everything, <laughs> and then he's like, "So wait, He's like a Southern guy. He's like, "So white now." Like. The, that lady is really this guy. And, like, what's going on? <laughs> and I was just like, fucking pay attention. Um, anyway, yeah. I think it, I think it peaked on episode eight. Honestly, I thought that was the best episode. Uh,
3: there were some things I liked about the final episode. I really like what they did with Lizzie. I, I feel like there's a, pr- a lot of promise there for some development with her character. You know, she's essentially a human AI hybrid. And so is she going to side with the meths? Is she going to side with humans or is she going to see herself as AI, like above humanity in every aspect? Cause she's not really human anymore. And then I, I liked some ways that they represented, uh, head above the clouds. Um, and you know, I liked some of Takeshi and his sister's moments, but it droned on. We heard about what 30, 40 solid minutes of just. Exposition of everything, and it just repeated over and over and over again, just hammering in. I'm a bad guy. You have to shoot your friends. I'm a bad guy.
0: Yeah. Now you
3: have to shoot them again. You know all this. Just it 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 droned for very long.
2: I guess that bothered me less because it felt like you know there was like trying to set up like what the, like a difficult and, and challenging situation he sort of put himself in, and and so like to me it, it felt. I mean I can see what you're saying but it, it to me it felt dramatically satisfying it's just like even if it was you know ultimately it was sort of like you know like mustache twirling it it was you know it it felt to me like interesting mustache twirling
0: well and also just the um you know the 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 when the the um Bancroft's like this is another sort of film noir detective kind of trope where the um the detective lays out all the facts against the the villain or whatever, and then they're like, oh yeah, you got me. And I, I just didn't buy that these, these like incredibly ruthless, cunning, powerful people, uh, or just sort of break down and you're like, Oh, you you we were such bad people. You got us, yeah. you know, Cersei um, doesn't
1: do that. Right. Like when, <laughs> Cersei's not going to do that. You know? Yeah. Those like, people like wait for just quick. Sh-
0: shut up and wait for your lawyer. Like if you're ever in that situation, people <laughs> like just don't confess like that's, that doesn't make any sense.
3: Yeah. The Bancroft party thing where, you know, first it comes, he comes after Bancroft and then, and then he comes surprise. It comes after Miriam and then Lizzie comes out and explains what happened. To her, And it's just like one after the other and they're just looking around like deer in the headlights being judged by all these faces that would never judge them because they, they've all mm-hmm. done this shit. They've all done this a <laughs> hundred times over. They would not care.
2: Well, yeah. and I think like also the most interesting version of that scene had happened several episodes earlier where he gathers all the suspects and lays out a solution, except it's a complete lie. And he's like fabricating this thing. And he's trying to, you know, put one over on everyone. And in fact, like, the, you know, in that case, the supposed criminal doesn't confess and it's just denying the whole way through and they still, you know, don't believe her and they buy his story. And and so like to have that much more interesting version of it play out and then the more traditional stuff come later, I think also deflates it quite a bit.
1: Was the 10th episode the one with the clone fight between Ortega and the sister? I think that was was the end of the 9th episode. God, that was an awesome fight. I love when that. she grabs that so she grabs a handful of glass in her in her fancy arm and just like whacks her upside the head with a handful of broken glass. I was like, oh man, there's some good stuff in this show. <laughs> you know, it's just like so brutal.
0: Yeah, um, well, I, I liked the clone fight too. I mean, and I, for listeners, this is the part where Ortega finds her way into Ray's like clone backup vault. And, um, and we know that Ray is this unbelievable ninja fighter. And so, but Ortega has a gun, but so she's able to just gun her down, but then another clone wakes up and she guns that one down and then another one. And, and it gets really tense because, you know, she has a limited amount of ammunition and then, you know, things like bad shit's going to happen once she runs out of bullets to fight these different bodies. Well, I like the way they picked that up too, where then you, they sort of end
2: with sort of Ortega in peril with this little girl. And then yeah. she shows up at the beginning of the next episode and you're like, wow, how did she get out of that one Is the little girl in the apartment? And then you slowly realize that actually she's been captured and it's, you know, Ray, you know, using her sleeve. Uh, the
1: whole time I was wondering whether the Ortega as an, as an actor was going to be able to get through this series without being naked. And, then <laughs> and then I was like, oh, there's the 10th episode. They got her. <laughs> she wasn't able to make it through. Um, it's just because it's just so
0: gratuitous throughout. I feel like she was naked well before the 10th episode. Yeah, she, oh, was and, she? Right. Yeah, the she and Riker scene.
3: had a long sex scene.
1: Oh, wait. You're right. Okay.
3: <laughs> that was probably Sorry. the longest one they did. And I was I was watching it at work uh, because I was trying to finish it for a review. And I'm just like looking around. Oh, God. <laughs> like hiding like the computer.
0: I feel like there were multiple showers scenes as well. Um, yes. So. Oh, yeah.
1: All right. Well, I just guess I didn't pay attention. I got
0: to get, <laughs> <gotta> get
1: my, <laughs> my naked notes.
0: Uh, dialed in. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, Beth was just saying that at the end, that they just sort of hit you over the head with, you're know, like, Oh, I did this, and then I did this, so I'm so evil. And I totally agree with that. But at the same time, I think it's still way too confusing by the end. Like, wait, who, wh- what was the, like, what was the, like, crime and everything? I mean, it, it's, it's really convoluted. <laughs> I mean, as I, as I think it gets put together, basically, like, uh, Miriam Bancroft, the wife uh a ca- beat lizzie causing her to miscarry and then ray found out about that and then used that to blackmail miriam into uh giving the drug stallion to lawrence <laughs> so that he would kill one of the prostitutes so that she could then blackmail him into voting against uh proposition 653 or whatever it was and then he killed himself so that he would forget that he had done that. I mean, it gets so complicated. And uh, I, I just i yeah, wonder I how many people. About uh, that proposition thing, right? I
1: mean, yeah. they really talked about that in the first episode. And then that's, we never really heard about it as far as I could remember.
3: And if you can believe yeah, it, like, in it at all. some character <laughs> stories were combined into single characters. Like, Lizzie is the culmination of, like, three different character stories. So it's even more convoluted when you're reading it in the book. I feel like a lot of the Head in the Clouds, Head Above the Clouds, however you say it, wasn't very well explained. And I felt it was kind of just thrown at us last minute, and it was just a thing, but also too complicated and then they had the whole Catholic, you know, they're secretly neo-Catholic and I didn't know Ray could make that design. It's it's all very confusing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree that the Head in the Clouds thing and, and also the Lizzie miscarriage beating thing should have been earlier. I mean, there should have been you know, we should have seen people on Head in the Clouds or something in like episode four or five or something. I, I, I felt like, yeah, he, I, I feel like he looks at it in the uh, telescope and I feel like there's basically no mention of it before then. I mean, there's the, the thing in the, when I rewatched the first episode, Poe mentions it really briefly. Um, and I don't remember really any other references to yeah. it. Yeah.
1: But, you know, I, I do appreciate the symmetry between the first and the last episodes, you know, where we pay off the, the woman falling from the sky and like, you know, we sort of see. I don't know. Like, I kind of like just from a structural standpoint how it kind of came together in that way. Um, it's just a little hard because you are ten hours later, you know, and it's sort of hard to remember the stuff from that happened at the beginning.
2: Yeah. Well, it also feels a little airless to me when like everything ties together because then it, you just I feel like you see the hand of the author a little too clearly as opposed to just having more kind of random I mean I guess there were also the the red herrings that we we're talking about earlier, but I think even the red herrings ultimately tie into the bigger mystery in some way, just not in the way that we think. And and so to have it just all kind of, you know, in a bow, I, I'm not crazy about that as an ending.
3: I mean, that's very film noir, very it's the whole the whole story is very classic film noir, right down to the scores of women who are throwing themselves at at this dark, you know, shadowy, tortured protagonist. But it does, you know, it does leave the question of do classic film noir stories, do they ring as true for us anymore as they did, you know, as they did before? Like, does it work Mm. for does it work in our in 2018? I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what kind of scared me whenever I saw the first episode. I was thinking, oh, this again, because I think it's become a little calcified. Here's here's what I imagine is the thinking. This is a really complicated science fictional world. There's a ton of exposition. There's a ton of shit to explain about the world. So they want to just build it on top of something that audiences already understand. Like, we're solving a crime, you know, and that's going to be sort of the guiding principle that gets audiences through all of this and and gets them to learn all about this crazy, complicated world. But the thing is, like, is that safety net, you know, does it still apply? Just because it's so familiar doesn't mean that it's still something that we care about. It's still something that we want to follow.
0: Well, one, one observation I read once about film noir... Or, you know, the PI characters that I think is really interesting is that a private investigator makes a great um, protagonist for exploring a world, even a science fiction world, because a private investigator is really the only kind of character who interacts with everybody in every stratum of society, from the drug dealer on the street corner to the richest, you know, billionaire in his mansion. And so if you want to show – if you've constructed a a great science fiction world, as this show does – it's really good to have a private investigator to be able to move through it and show how this technology is playing out in the mansions, in the on the street, in the military, etc. So I think that still works really well. But I just think there are certain conventions of the film noir, you know, crime noir sort of genre that are just stale at this point. And one of them is the just sort of macho macho-ness, uh, I just think, you know, is played out at this point. Yeah, it's just not interesting in any way.
1: Yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> but I love the, the world. I love the, the AI characters and, the, and the, all the really inventive technology and, and the way they use the sleeves uh, to explore really emotional situations. Um, I mean, that was the great strength of the series, I thought. I'm really curious how they're going to do season two. You know, what do they do now? They kind of, like you said, wrapped it up with a bow. So new actor.
3: He's got he's got a new body now. Oh, for sure. Joel Kinnaman only signed up for one season. He's out. It's a new sleeve, man. It's a whole new (laughs) world. Which is
2: why you don't see his face at the
0: end.
3: Yep.
1: Interesting. Okay. well, that's a good start.
0: (laughs) So, Beth, you actually said that actor was I think you said your least favorite part of the show.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've never been a huge fan of Joel Kinnaman altogether. I think he's okay, and I feel like here he was at – he was better than I've seen him in previous stuff. He's better than in, for example, Suicide Squad, although that's not really – you know, that's not a super (laughs) high bar to jump over. I just don't feel he's very ranged. He doesn't have a lot of range, and he's literally playing a character inside another character. He is playing – He's not playing himself. He's supposed to be playing Takeshi Kovacs, But he was playing Joel Kinnaman as Take- Take- Takeshi Kovacs, And it really tested the limits of how much I could envision the character versus envisioning the actor. And I just, like, it kind of reminded me of Eliza Dushku on Dollhouse, where she's supposed to be playing all these different characters. And they all end up just being slightly varied versions of faith from Buffy like it ends up being slightly varied versions and he has the same issues and I felt like it limited what we understood about the character and didn't really give us a chance to to explore his inner psyche the way we could in a first-person narrative in the book
0: yeah I I agree with that I mean I, I didn't feel like there was really any you know like well you saw Takeshi Kovacs in the past and then you saw yeah, Joel Kinneman in the present. And I didn't feel like there was really any way that you would associate those characters with each other if you weren't told that they're the same character. They didn't seem like the same person or anything in any particular way. Does anyone know yeah, who like, disagrees with that? Yeah, like sort of Will dick-ish. actually laughed and smiled.
3: I was like, this is the Takeshi I want. He has a sense
0: of humor. Uh, what did you What did you say, Anthony?
2: Well, I was saying that, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a connection just in the sense that the, I guess the other, the sort of the the Kovacs who's not the original, but isn't Joel Kinnaman also has that sort of like cocky kind of machismo. So you can, you can kind of see it, but it's not like you don't get, I don't, I certainly don't get the sense that they coordinated their performances in any way or that like, you know, that, that there's like a real arc between them. I mean, it, it wasn't totally unbelievable, but I agree that, that there doesn't seem to be much there in terms of like, Fitting those three performances together.
1: Yeah. Not like Abuelita, who was hobbling around, had a bad back, like looked exactly like a grandma trapped in a thug's body. <laughs> 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 but I mean, maybe that was an easier thing to do because they're so different. I mean, both of these guys are just badass soldier dudes, right? So it's kind of a blank slate.
0: Yeah. Well, so what did you guys think about some of these other characters? We haven't really talked about Vernon Elliot. Uh, we haven't really talked about Mr. Lung or the Ghost Walker guy. Um, do you guys have any uh, any thoughts about either of those characters?
3: I really liked Vernon and Ava, uh, especially like I loved when I loved Vernon when Ava came back into his life. I really liked their dynamic together. Uh, I especially liked it because Vernon wasn't really a big part of the book. Lizzie wasn't even alive in, in the book. And Ava also was not alive. So this family got a really big expansion for the show, which I felt was very needed because Takeshi needed somebody to bounce ideas off of that wasn't just an AI. Although I loved Poe. Poe was amazing. <laughs> Um, but once Ava came back into Vernon's life, we got this really interesting examination of identity that should have been present with Takeshi with Joel Kinnaman, but it wasn't quite there. But this is this is a man who's who's come faced with his wife who's in a man's body and you see there's this moment of hesitation and then it's gone. And I actually felt that was really clever because in the future, bodies don't mean anything. So gender yeah would presumably not mean the same thing as we sometimes uh, you know associate now
1: And when Lizzie sees her mother, she doesn't even see she sees what she wants to see I guess there's that part where she says something's different. oh, you've got a haircut like I that was that was episode eight and that's what I love I mean that was for me the high point of the whole series was that um, that really amazing part where they get reunited. And they, that realization, man, that had me. That had my heart. <laughs> I was like pretty pulled in by that.
0: Well, yeah. And so what we're saying, like with the Abuelita, and then with with Lizzie and her mother as well, is it, I I just wish the show had had a little bit more time for just what does it mean for people you know and love to be to appear to you in different bodies over time, um, and maybe they could have just streamlined the mystery plot, which was okay and was just overly confusing i think in the end because because it's it's more of those quiet moments from this um that that seemed to stick out in my mind
1: well i loved when he when he discovered that the the lady's daughter had been sleeving herself in her mom's body and then like hooking up with people like i felt that was ultimately a red herring i guess but i felt like that was a really strong use of the of the world in order to push the plot forward in a unique way but then it just kind of got left,
3: and that was weird. That was so weird. <laughs> that whole scene, yeah. I'm like, no, no, I have limits. <laughs> I would right? no, I would never <laughs> go into my mom's body. No, <laughs>
2: <Dang> it, <dude. laughs> oh, <God. laughs> although if it's your oh, mom's body that like is like you know the you know tenth or twentieth clone anyway, maybe it's slightly okay. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I will say one other. Thing yeah, like fifth fifth clone is is totally <laughs> yeah. wrong, but tenth clone, that's like, all right? right.
2: <laughs> We've done it. Yeah, it's like well, yeah. I, I was going to say one other thing that I wish they'd explored in that area was the question of you know how much um you know your consciousness and yourself is like inherently tied to one body, Um which I think they touch on a little bit in the book where they have this moment where where basically when Takeshi switches bodies or switches sleeves, his sexual attraction to somebody just basically evaporates. Um, and I think like, they don't do a lot with the book either, but I think like they, in, in both, they they mostly just treat it as if like consciousness is entirely this sort of thing that can be, you know, transferred digitally. Um, and, and I, I think it would have been more interesting if if there had been some suggestion that there's all, you know, that that, that some of that has to just come from the body itself.
1: Yeah, that's, that's such... See, the more they explore their, their science fiction concept, I think the stronger the material. Like, when they're trying at the end to make uh, Ray seem evil, and they're they're depending on, like, real basic stuff, like, oh, you killed her family, right? Like, okay, that's pretty damn evil. Like, I get it. They keep showing those kids' his legs. You know? Remember that? Like, they show it, like, three, four times. The, the police captain pukes. I'm like, what's behind the couch? But, like, if... I would have been much more convinced and horrified if she had been doing something that was related to the high concept, like if she had been copying their bodies into goldfish. Like, you know, like Beth was talking about, like that to me is way more horrifying and villainous and also, you know, exists within the context of the show, more natural fit um, to to convey, you know, for instance, that Ray is like a villain. Like, I wish they would have done more to, to explore that stuff and get it in here, you know, to drive the show.
3: One thing I also would have loved to see more of is when it comes to the meths and their godlike status, as we see with the Shadow Walker, there's sort of a religion that's growing around these human beings who have been living for so long. You know, when Bancroft goes to visit these, you know, people who've contracted a disease so they can't be out and they're quarantined, you know, they see him as a god, you know, he's bestowing gifts upon the people and they're idolizing him. And then you've got this one dude who's, you know, clearly this devout weirdo who murders in the name of his almighty lords. But we don't get a sense of are these isolated examples or is there an actual religion that is rising up to perhaps combat with the neo-Catholics about human beings who they see as gods?
1: Yeah, that's so neat. Maybe they'll explore it in the next season. (laughs)
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, and I, I have forgotten about that scene you just mentioned where Bancroft goes and there are these – they're like lepers, basically. They have some sort of um, – I think it was some sort of manufactured disease or something, but uh, that he just touched – like no, no one will touch them and he touches them and he dies, but he just you know, gets backed up in a new body. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and yeah, I wish they had done more with Mr. Long and his religion. Like is he – Is he, are there other people like him? Is this just some weird thing that he – came up with or yeah is there more of a movement uh because it is it starts to get into sort of um uh, kind of like roger zelazny's um uh lord of light that kind of idea where the uh the immortal the the technological immortals just tell people that they're gods and who are the sort of common people How, how would they know any differently um but yeah all right cool so um all right, I think that's covered all the characters then and all the concepts I have here. Yeah.
2: Well, I guess I did want to touch, talk a little bit more about Lizzie because I, I have to say, like, I thought, like, where they were... Most of the time, I thought she was a pretty interesting character, but in terms of the 10th episode being bad, that was where I really felt like I I did not like what they did with her character once she kind of reentered the, you know, the real world. I think partly because it seemed like they were pulling in two different directions. One, where the, she was going to be this sort of, like, distant, godlike figure... And one where she's just sort of this, like, avenging angel. And, like... And, and I like that, like, Beth was saying that, you know, potentially it could go in either direction, and that's an interesting tension. But it felt more sort of incoherent to me, especially when you start with this scene where she, like... Where you see Poe, who's, like, been, like, in some ways the most interesting and sympathetic character, die. And she really doesn't have any meaningful response to that. And then she goes up to Head in the Clouds, and she, you know... Is like there's like no real urgency to like what she's doing, um, but like they're playing this music. It's it's a lot of it has to do with the music cue they were using for a lot of her early scenes in Head in the Clouds, where it just felt like you're supposed to be like, yeah, yeah, this is awesome. She's killing these guys. It's crazy great, outfit. and it just that's did like, not. Literary. Yeah, and it just didn't work for me at all because it just felt so disconnected to everything else that had been established about her character and everything that's happening around her.
3: I was so into it. <laughs> I'm like on the other <laughs> end. I love Lizzie's journey. I liked where it ended up. Uh, I, I thought her costume was really interesting. I got to talk to the the costume designer, and she said that the costume was really designed to explore the intersection between uh, superheroes and fetishism, which I thought was really interesting because that's actually a very real part of female superhero costume history. And I just love badass women in cat suits killing dudes <laughs> who are wearing no pants. I'm for it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> can't argue I with that.
1: I didn't like to see Poe die. Obviously, uh, he was my favorite character. <laughs> I don't think
3: anyone did. I, I hope he bummed. comes back. Like he can't Me be too. dead dead, right? Like he's still chilling in the bar. He's playing poker. He's fine.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we should mention too that I haven't I haven't read the book, but in the book it's not Edgar Allan Poe, it's like a Jimi Hendrix themed um hotel. And in this interview I watched with the showrunner, she said that, um, that they couldn't use Jimi Hendrix, obviously because the Jimi Hendrix Estate has very specific rules about him not being associated with too much violence, and uh, obviously that was just not gonna not gonna yeah. fly <laughs> in this show. Um, so, although I also just think the show, the
2: Poe just has much more personality than the Hendrix AI does in, in the book. I mean, it, it it has some in the book, and that's kind of there, but it feels like they developed it much more for the show
3: it connects a lot more to the noir and it really provides a an interesting companion for for uh, Takeshi in that he's likewise you know he's a little somber but he's also very he's he's eager and he's hopeful and he's helpful but then you also get these weird ravens so you know it's a good combo
1: <laughs> Takeshi never has a soft moment with him though you know he treats him like a machine the whole time which I was kind of hoping that he would grow on him at some point, but I can't recall a single moment where where he gets treated with respect by Kovach.
2: Or even if there's just like the even if he's mostly gruff, you get like the one moment where you see that he really yeah. respects him. But like that's not there at all.
3: Mm. <laughs> I think the saddest moment is when you hear that no one ever visits these hotels anymore. I'm like, oh my god, what? This thing is amazing. Why does no one go to AI <laughs> hotels? Like. They're all being turned into sex clubs because no one likes Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um by the w- way, there there's a hotel on the Oregon coast that is themed uh each room is themed after a writer, and I have stayed in the Poe room and it has the Damascus blade hanging over the bed, uh, <laughs> ready to chop you in half. It's full of ravens. <laughs> it's a very creepy hotel room to sleep in, but uh that, that does exist.
3: <laughs> well, if there's a digital, you know, Edgar Allan Poe that just shows up randomly and lets strange people into my apartment, then we're good to
0: go. <laughs> okay, so we're almost out of time, but let's talk a little bit more about season two. Uh, I mean, we mentioned it a little bit, but um, haven't you guys read other the other books in the series? I haven't, but. No. Nobody.
3: Just the first.
0: Yeah. All right. So, I mean, I. Um the showrunner mentioned uh, apparently they made a lot of changes to this that are going to seriously affect the second, you know, adapting the second book. Um so uh she said something there's something about a uh, an archaeological dig um and that they might have to really change that a lot. Does anyone is this is this going to get a second season? Have they uh, announced anything about that yet?
3: I thought they did, but they m- maybe I mean I thought it was assumed that it was getting a second season. But I'm frankly not sure. I mean, I was surprised at how little Netflix promoted this show. Like, they really didn't actually start promoting it until December. And, you know, on the week of its release, they did the surprise release of Cloverfield Paradox. So it kind of overshadowed the show. So I don't know. I don't know how much of a future it has. I hope it gets another season. I'd like to see more of it. But I don't know.
1: Me too. Yeah, I memorized a lot of stuff. All right, I mean, like I am fully immersed in this world. I'm I'm spun up. Got to so, make it worth my time. Me
0: <laughs> I mean, the critical response to this has been really split, right? I've heard a lot of people yeah. say, "Oh, this is amazing," and then a lot of people say, "Oh, this is pretty much a dud." Um, it's something like sixty one percent right now on Rotten Tomatoes, so I don't know if that's going to affect. Uh, whether it gets a second season or not, I don't know. Do you, do you guys have any sense of how popular this is, or how many people are watching it, anything like that? My nerd friends are watching it.
3: I've heard a lot of people saying like that they know it exists, or they saw an episode, and then nothing followed through. Like, there's, I'm not here. I'm not seeing a lot of rave response, and it's also not getting the delayed, you know, uh, word of mouth that first seasons of Stranger Things did.
2: Yeah, it seems like anecdotally just a lot of people being like, when I'm bringing up the fact that I'm watching it, they'll say, oh, should I watch that? So they know it's happening, but they're not watching it yet, which, I mean, does suggest that there's some level of awareness, so it's not totally, you know, sinking without a trace, but not that it's a home run yet.
1: (sighs) Yeah, it gives me hope because all the science fiction I write has too much stuff going on, too much exposition, so I hope this does well because it gives me hope that you can create a really complex world and tell a cool story and, and get away with it, you know?
0: But we'll Yeah. See. I, yeah. I mean, and again, the, the world building in this is so good and yeah, I, I hope that more things like this get made. And, uh, I certainly, I, enjoy, except for the 10th episode, as I said, I, I really wa- enjoyed this whole thing. I watched every episode and I was just, you know, eager to get to the next one. So, um, yeah, I hope it gets to season two as well. All right, cool. So any, uh, any other final thoughts before we wrap this up? I like that they had multiple actors from Dollhouse and
2: one actor from Buffy. So, like, for, for Joss Whedon fans, little Easter eggs.
3: They were everywhere, <laughs> every, like, every other episode. And one of them also spoke with a horrible Russian accent. I was like, this is beautifully <laughs> terrible. Thank you. Thank you for this gift.
2: There's, yeah, there's a long tradition of terrible Russian accents on American TV and movies. So, I, I yeah, I, it worked. It was good. He was having a good time. Everyone was having a good time, except Joel Kinnaman, who was just doing a lot of push-ups.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, cool. So I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Daniel H. Wilson, Beth Elderkin, and Anthony Ha. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Daniel H. Wilson, Beth Elderkin, and Anthony Haw for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Serial Box for sponsoring today's show. Check out their new thriller, False Idols. And remember that you can get a discount on the first season of any Serial Box series by visiting serialbox.com and using the promo code Geek18. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy
1: is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show